0: live eric thanks for joining me today man i appreciate it
1: sure yeah good to talk to you
0: absolutely would you like to introduce yourself
1: um yeah sure i have uh, a platonism channel understanding platonism uh, on youtube where i go into um some ancillary kind of historical documents um there was one middle platonist Alcinus, who i thought was actually pretty interesting and uh, and of course plato himself i run reading groups so we've been going through the curriculum of iamblichus so right now we're on the theatetus which is on kind of the question of the nature of knowledge and um, we have pretty good attendance with that group Um, and yeah it's been fun that we do Neoplatonism texts as well, so we're also right now reading Proclus on the existence of evils, which I highly recommend is one of the best treatments of that uh, theodicy problem, the problem of evil. And um, let's see, what else are we doing? We have a group on Aristotle's Organon, so right now we're doing Prior Analytics. Which uh, is not all that complicated as far as how the system works, you know, how first figure, second figure syllogisms are supposed to be. But Aristotle himself is extremely difficult to read. And uh, yeah, we're consulting like Neoplatonic commentators on Aristotle. So there's like Ammonius, Simplicius, also some peripatetic or Aristotelian commentators from antiquity, like uh, Alexander of aphrodisius i think and uh so we're reading him right now we're reading a couple modern commentaries and i don't profess to be an expert in uh aristotle uh i know a good bit about plato and i feel like i am competent enough to lead those groups but with aristotle it's like very much in over our heads kind of thing learning it together but it's fun
0: yeah plato is definitely what i wanted to talk about today if you just want to give a brief overview of who plato was and then kind of a uh simplistic as simplistic as you can make it breakdown of what Platonism is. And then what are some of like the core tenets and ideals of that?
1: Sure. Yeah. And all of this is very much debated. Um, I am of the school of thought that Plato belonged basically to the school of the Pythagoreans. So, uh, Pythagoras was a pre-Socratic philosopher. Um, uh, sixth century BC, so of course you had the um, Milesian school where philosophy really got kicked off. So there was Thales, who's famous for the saying that like uh, everything is fundamentally water, and that's what characterized a lot of the pre-Socratics. This identification of like what is the the real like substance of things. So Thales went for water. Uh, Anaximander, I forget what he said. Anaximenes said air, and uh, Pythagoras was like the next generation after these guys. And he came to view number, basically, as the foundation of all things. Pythagoras was the one that discovered um, the numerical ratios inherent in musical uh, intervals. For example, like the octave is characterized by a one to two ratio. So you'll have two vibrations for every one vibration in an octave. A perfect fifth is three to two. A perfect fourth is three to four. So that was one of his big discoveries. Of course, he's also uh, attributed with discovering the Pythagorean theorem. There's debate about that, how much of this stuff actually came from India, in fact. But um, Pythagoras traveled the Mediterranean, supposedly learned from the Egyptian priests, from the Chaldean priests, um, various systems, and then kind of synthesized his own views and that was the leading force behind greek mathematics so um yeah uh that this is also where you get for the first time the quadrivium the kind of classical four main areas of study so you had arithmetic geometry uh music and astronomy which is kind of wrapped together with astrology and you do see astrological themes in plato as well but uh All of those things are stressed i mean the quadrivium itself is mentioned in a few dialogues like in that order and this was part of a uh, a school of thought that grew into various communities in italy this is why um kind of later uh pythagorean influenced philosophers like zeno of elia or um or parmenides also of elia uh came from that part of the world So you had Pythagorean communities that uh, gained some prominence and influence. They, uh, you know, had kind of communal property. And like when you first joined, you couldn't speak for a number of years. And then eventually they would like allow you to begin participating in things but very kind of rigid and like all these mystical ideas and very little is known about them like in firm historical terms a lot of the documents come from the Neo-Pythagorean school which is much later 1st century BC 1st, 2nd sec- uh, century AD some of those authors would be like Nicomachus of Gerasa. he's a big one um And so, yeah, this is kind of what was going on. The Pythagoreans were persecuted, though, and so they didn't have any living schools left, but there still were adherents to the philosophy, and this circulated kind of in the background of things. There are documents that suggest that Plato uh, bought a couple books off of a Pythagorean named Philolaus, um, also, uh, Plato's friend and contemporary, Archytas, who was one of the co-founders, basically of the Platonic Academy, was a Pythagorean and a student of Philolaus. So, um, Philolaus is never mentioned in the dialogues. Neither is Archytas. Uh, Pythagoras is very indirectly and sparingly. It's like he kind of kept it in the background. But uh, you know, the idea of the Platonic forms is i would say it's a development out of pythagorean ideas but plato does share the main kind of hierarchy of being that the pythagoreans ended up believing in so the pythagoreans illustrated it with the tetractus which is a set of 10 dots going in a pyramid one dot two three dots four so uh for the pythagoreans the Tetractus encoded all sorts of different hierarchies that we see in nature um, but kind of primarily and at the highest metaphysical level this symbolized the one which is the kind of undifferentiated principle of all things very similar to like the idea of Brahman in Hinduism or the absolute in Hegelianism and then you would have uh, the monad and the indefinite dyad as the next two members at the second level and uh, so the monad is the principle of order and limit. Another name would be peros or uh, on the side of the indefinite dyad, another name would be a So on the indefinite dyad, this is the source of kind of unlimited energies. It's also the archetype of matter. So we have the opposition at the highest level, or I guess second highest level between form and matter kind of archetypally. The next level um, represents harmonia, similar to the idea of the harmony of the spheres. And uh, this is where you get like the laws of nature in a differentiated form, right? Not just like, incipient in the possible combinations of limit and the unlimited but like all of the kind of mathematical structuring principles of things appear at that that third level in the detractus and then finally the four dots on the bottom symbolize the cosmic realm and yeah that's basically how uh, Plato viewed it as well Uh, the traditional kind of neoplatonic codification of the highest level of platonic metaphysics which is really probably not the best place to start but if you want to get like a really high level overview this is what people come to you also have the one and the monad and the indefinite dyad but all of those are wrapped into what's called the first hypostasis um, A hypostasis is something like you know that which underlies or supports a certain class of beings So the highest hypostasis is that one monad, indefinite dyad, and then also the henads, if we're going to trust Proclus, which are kind of like aspects of unity, perhaps. And then the second hypostasis is initiated with the form of being, which is uh, seemingly by Plato equivocated with the form of the beautiful. Um, This is probably due to a kind of inherent double meaning in the Greek term eidos, which doesn't just mean... um, a particular form, but also like formliness or shapeliness, you know, so it had the the connotation of of beauty. So that's uh, kind of seen as the highest form in a certain regard. If you read uh, what Plato has to say about beauty in the Symposium or the Phaedrus, um, that seems to be indicated. Um, So you go through all the various forms in the second hypostasis. At the very end of the second hypostasis, this is where you'll encounter the figure of the Demiurge, who is kind of the one that uh, takes all of these eternal forms and combines them and sets them in motion and kind of, you know, initiates the beginning of the world. Um, So the third hypostasis then would be soul, And this is uh, really obvious in Plotinus, like he has this, for a second, third hypostasis, the one intellect or the forms for the second, and the third is soul. And then underneath soul, you have matter. So uh, basically Platonism is kind of the inverse of the way we typically think of our ontology, where for us, everything builds up from matter. Like you wouldn't have logic unless you had particles bumping into each other and then emergent structures. You know, we're all about bottom-up emergence typically today. uh, Everything is exactly the opposite in Platonism. So the forms of everything precede their instantiations. And um, I would say, yeah, the forms are uh, a genuine platonic concept, uh, difficult to completely understand. And there are classic problems that are brought up even by Plato himself. Um, about how the forms might operate and how you could, you know, maintain a coherent philosophical system with that supposition, the Parmenides um, is one of the densest, most difficult dialogues, and that deals with this problem. It actually introduces the third man argument, which is one of the classic, you know, seeming refutations of the forms. Of course, it's ad- it's uh, introduced by Plato himself, so clearly Plato didn't see this as a devastating critique. Uh, But the third man argument basically goes that if we need forms to explain the similarity between things, um, like, you know, you and me are both man somehow, we share a common nature of man. And now what accounts then for the similarity between the form of man and you? You know, then you need to posit some higher level form that explains the similarity between these two. Um, so that's just an example of one of the, the arguments that's been levied against the forms. And there are different, like, systematizations of what exa- how exactly the forms operate. A lot of that stuff was worked out in Neoplatonism. And, you know, there are still kind of theories along those lines. Even Bertrand Russell ended up having a kind of hierarchy of beings like this with a kind of realm of mathematicals. And you need something beyond, like, mathematical principles um, I think necessarily, um, in a philosophical system for it to make sense. But the big problem, if you try to reject the forms entirely and reject this notion that like the, the form of things, the, the logic of things precedes their instantiation is it becomes basically impossible to have coherent theories of knowledge of language. Why does language work? How can we identify similarity in things? It's like um, when people try to reject that kind of lower P Platonism, just the idea that there are fixed forms in reality, um, then like, in order to articulate the position against it, you rely on language that is capturing similarities and treating things as uh, these kind of fixed metaphysical categories, whether or not you acknowledge them uh, philosophically. So I'd say that's probably, yeah, his main contribution, what he's most famous for is really making this problem of universals explicit. Um, and of course, there's all sorts of different ethical propositions that flow from that. If you know beauty is this highest source of uh, the forms, then it's also kind of the highest end in a certain way of beings. Um, although it's not the highest thing, the highest thing will be the good. So the the one is equivocated with the good, and so everything is kind of imbued with this teleology. Um, And also Proclus, uh, probably the leading Neoplatonic uh, theorist, has the idea that um, a thing's proper good is derived from that thing's source. So if the forms of these eternal things that beget their instantiations... The good of man will be returning to the archetypal man will be like realizing the the form that's inherent um, in the particular, and so basically form is good, matter is bad, so that's why Plato likes geometry and likes you know uh, advocates architecture and other mathematical studies and stuff, and that's where a lot of his ethics derive.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Beautiful. Thank you for that. I have a very one pixel image of all of this stuff. I'm definitely not well read in Greek philosophy. What originally turned me on to Platonism and looking at Neoplatonism and stuff like that was when I started to think about reality in terms of whether or not we have a bidirectional relationship with the world around us or if it's purely coming just from the world or from the abstract god that lives within our mind and that's when i started kind of looking into plato himself looking into neoplatonism i'm not familiar with most of the people you mentioned i'm definitely familiar with like socrates plato aristotle and Plotinus. those were kind of where i got my general overviews of this style of thinking And I found it fascinating because in today's world, in contemporary thinking, everything is so logical in the sense that it's mathematical, not necessarily that we derive rationality from things that we can factually prove. And then also the irrational mind itself. It's that it's either pure equations coming from people like Kant and Descartes uh, or... It's totally irrational, and we just can't even begin to comprehend what reality truly is. Which I would think that, like, maybe Jung would be a good example of that. Like, I love Carl Jung myself. I think that his thoughts on psychology were groundbreaking. But when I really started diving into it, uh, I was like, do we... Are we slaves to this irrational mind? Do we have any sort of free will? Like, do we... Purely exists within this abstract irrational place and nothing else is real around us But it's like I can reach out and I can touch the table and it's like this is real, you know, like we're getting feedback from this so It's like in my mind is that's that's where I get to the point where I'm like, I think that we have a a bi-directional relationship with reality that We have that irrational aspect in our mind that we cannot explain but it's also growing and developing and interacting with the world around us and it's not one or the other. And I really got turned on in this idea when I started listening to John Brevakey and when he was talking about how these religions and these philosophies and ideas act as vessels for wisdom and self-transcendence, not necessarily like, hey, these are scripture that you have to follow to get into hell or heaven or wherever the case is. And that was kind of a long tangent there but what i was getting at is so for yourself coming at this from a purely platonic standpoint how do you view your interaction with reality um, and how do you view the world around you is it is it purely you collecting information from the world and the world is shaping your mind you are in a bi-directional relationship with it or it is purely your mind creating reality through your imagination or through the filters that you're using to see the world
1: Mm. yeah it's a good question you know carl jung actually was uh essentially a platonist in his dialogues with wolfgang pauli the quantum uh physicist he says that the archetypes of the collective subconscious are the same as plato's forms um he was also a schopenhauerian um and that's like you know where we get basically this idea of the the unconscious um yes freud articulates it but it's there in schopenhauer's philosophy um pretty strongly and schopenhauer himself like uh, in the intro to his main work the world as will and representation says that he is completing the platonic system with his philosophy so um Yeah, a lot more modern philosophers would count as Platonists than a lot of us necessarily uh, are aware of. Like Leibniz also, pretty obviously a Neoplatonist. But yeah, so the bidirectionality or unidirectionality question is really, it's really deep and um, it's a tough one. And it depends on how you interpret Plato. You know, I have my own views that I would feel comfortable... Um, sharing as mine, I don't know that I would feel comfortable saying this is the Platonic view on the subject. Yeah. It really depends on the nature of the self. You know, like um the Iamblichian curriculum is kicked off with the first Alcibiades, which is uh sometimes doubted as a genuinely Platonic dialogue. The ancients thought it was genuine. And that the main question there is this question of like how do you attain self-knowledge and of course why would you want to attain self-knowledge and the issue of the nature of that self and what are we really pointing to uh gets pretty specific in in different kind of neoplatonic commentators so we have the tripartite soul already in the republic express so we have the kind of um epithumeticon thumeticon logisticon or appetite spirited emotion kind of like courageous feelings and then at the highest level reason um and neoplatonic
0: man i'm sorry i was gonna say that's like the man lion monster uh, argument right
1: yeah yeah and from the republic right um so this is similar also from hinduism the idea of the um at the highest level sattvic temperament rajasic temperament and tamasic uh, temperament that's exactly the same as plato's tripartite soul and the parallels between platonism and hinduism um have led many people to conclude um including this physicist um Weisaker, i forget his first name to conclude that plato uh, essentially did subscribe to the school of advaita vedanta he was at at heart a monist um, that's not as obvious if you read some of the Neoplatonic commentators. Proclus it leaves some things uh, ambiguous in in this regard. In a certain sense, he seems to be saying in his philosophy that what we essentially are as the rational soul is um, kind of con- consigned to always be what it is and to energize eternally, cyclically, all of its possible energies so in infinitely many lifetimes we completely exhaust the capacities of our essential nature and you cannot change essence 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 never changes and so it seems like he's saying you know no atman is not brahman you know the individual soul or the kernel of the soul that's like our true self that is just consigned to be what it is i don't know though if that was Proclus's like ultimate position, he may have been saying that a given rational soul as a kind of structure in the overall cosmology he's describing necessarily energizes over infinitely many lifetimes um, just as a, a logical necessity, but the true self, I don't know if he really identifies, must be the entirety of that rational soul or not. There's the question of, you know, is the true self not just the rational soul, but like the summit of the rational soul? And in Platonism, the summits of all these different beings all meet in their archetypes, right? So if uh, the summit of our being and therefore like the, the most essential, most true being that we are is beyond the particularities of our rational soul, then perhaps through... Mystic contemplation, meditation, theurgy—we um, can actually escape the experience of the, you know, cycle of the rational soul that we're caught up in, perhaps. But that's very speculative. Um, I do tend to to lean that way in my own interpretation, and I think it's likely that Plato was a monist. That doesn't, though, mean that like we are creating our reality entirely and there's no feedback because by the same token you know if if the summit of my being or the to use the greek term is the one is you know the the metaphysical ultimate so is yours and so is everyone else's and that's there in the world as well as in ourselves and the purpose of this whole play the purpose of maya would be sort of to to exhaust and explore all of the, the possibilities, the creative possibilities that are latent in the one. So it wouldn't be the case that I have a special kind of privileged ability to create my reality. Um, so this also, you know, has to do with like Aristotelian act and potency, you know, Aristotle did believe that there was a reality to contingent states you know, not that um, he do, he goes into this in on interpretation where he's discussing like if there will be a sea battle tomorrow or there will not be a sea battle tomorrow. One or the other has to be true, right? Like logically, one or the other will be the case. So once it has come to pass, doesn't that then kind of render it necessary for all past time that this future would have come to be? I can't repeat Aristotle's argument, but ultimately he says, uh, no, it was not necessary. Once it has happened, that actuality is necessary as that actuality. But prior to that, it was logically true that either the sea battle would happen or would not happen, but it wasn't predetermined which would be the case. And so the the future matter that we're uh, talking about there, the future event, is in a kind of superposition of possibility in Aristotle's philosophy which is pretty interesting. Um I think, you know, considering that we think of like classical philosophy kind of on the archetype of Newtonian physics, but Newtonian physics with its clockwork mechanism is actually a break from the classical philosophy which is more like quantum mechanics in a certain way. But um yeah, so but the deal with uh the form and matter and act and potency there is that we as souls who are closer to the formal principle of things than material objects with our measurement with our engagement with the world actually do have like meaningful impacts we can change things by the same token though we are impacted and changed because we are not pure form we also have a material nature both mentally and And physically, obviously we have a material nature that is receptive of change from without also in our minds. Even the forms have like a material aspect to them. The material is just the receptive, right? The formal is the active, that's the, the monad. And then the material is the receptive, the indefinite dyad. It allows for energization and kind of filling out of possibilities, but also is always kind of submissive to that formal imposition when it occurs. So we have that in our minds. We have the indefiniteness of our thought world that becomes refined and definite through interactions with other rational beings. We also have that at a a material level. So I, I would say it is both, perhaps at an ultimate level, if you talk about what is the true self, well, the true, true self maybe is the one itself in In that case, then yeah, I guess we're all creating our reality. But for the purposes of like me as Eric, you as Trent, I would say it's definitely a, a two-way street there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It reminded me as you were talking like a canvas and we are the painters. So the world is your canvas and you are painting reality across it. And without the world, you could not create beauty. But at the same time, the origination of that beauty is coming from inside of yourself, from the mind itself. That's kind of what was popping into my mind as you were talking there. That's beautiful. So how do you think that Platonism lays out a path towards self-transcendence or achieving that oneness?
1: Yeah, well, like I said, Plato, I think, was a Pythagorean, and so it's basically the Pythagorean (laughs) curriculum, plus uh, some gymnastics and, uh, you know, engagement in a civic life that is structured around, like, spaces that are meant to emulate uh, the formal aspect of nature. I would say the the place to look for like, how does Plato recommend that we live is his education of the guardians from the Republic. And, um, so one of the main principles, um, kind of at a baseline level is the, uh, compensatory influence of music and gymnastics. Um, if we practice too much on the gymnastics side of things, then our spirit becomes rigid and coarse. If we practice too much on the musical side of things, which of course like encompasses poetry and by extension philosophy even, then we become kind of too soupy and insubstantial. Um, yeah, there's there's also the notion involved in the Neoplatonic curriculum of the Scala Virtutum or S- Ladder of Virtues. And I I hope that I can remember them all. Probably I won't but uh there is the acknowledgement in the first place that you are born with a particular type of soul just like in hinduism you're born with a tamasic temperament or rajasic temperament etc um so you uh, there's also this idea pretty clearly spelled out in plato himself in the phaedrus that there are various types of souls that you kind of elect the type of soul that you're going to have in your afterlife journey from you know the end of your previous life um And he spells out like which those categories of souls are according to common professions. Um, So the top three are going to be like the musician, the philosopher and the lover, which I don't know exactly, you know, where that stands. uh, Like what kind of life precisely does that entail? But anyway. um, Yeah. So first of all, you have a particular kind of temperament and life that you're working with here. And that's your kind of natural virtues. Uh, step two is habituated virtues, and you know, like Plutarch, uh, the Middle Platonist, will emphasize the value of education, saying like it's the most important thing you can invest in. Now, um, I believe Plutarch was a priest of the the oracle at Delphi. Um, I could be mistaken on that, but also he was a teacher, so it's not uncommon for teachers to like loud the importance of education and how much money you should invest in it Um, but anyway so there's that kind of step on the ladder of things um, that can't be neglected like the self-actualization journey is not uh, self-centered and self-oriented it has to be in the context of a broader community I think so after natural and, and habituated virtues we have the civic virtues which like can't be skipped you have to like kind of master mundane civic justice and courage, you know, participation in the military participate for Greeks. That was compulsory. That was just part of life for us. We have more options, but um, yeah, those, the four big virtues uh, that are often talked about in a bunch of uh, dialogues, justice, courage, temperance, and wisdom at a kind of mundane level are the civic virtues. Then beyond that, you begin with the contemplative virtues. This also kind of mirrors, like, uh, essentially um, the chakra system from Hinduism. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, once you work into the contemplative uh, virtues, you there is, like, a passive and active phase there. Um, and this is where I'm getting a little bit fuzzy on the specific. Details there. But this is the idea behind the I Am Lukean curriculum. is like moving us through the virtues. And a big part of it is like, you know, reading through the dialogues that we have and exploring these particular philosophical concepts. Because, um, you know, it gives substance to like the concept of justice or the concept of wisdom. There's a reason why he takes entire dialogues, just looking for a good definition of a single term. And if you don't have good definitions of these terms, then you're First of all, liable to be manipulated at just that civic level by, pe- by rhetoricians or sophists or tyrants who are, you know, purporting to offer the good life when really it's uh, a pleasurable life or, or something along those lines. And then, uh, yeah, you won't be able to begin the contemplation of real beings. For Plato, like the forms are the really real beings. Things here have a kind of a secondary reality, not as real as the forms. So in order to start contemplating real beings, we're going to have to like, call them by their proper names. The The purpose of names is to both divide up reality, you know, divide the warp and woof of reality, and also to weave it together uh, into the proper whole. But if we don't distinguish the natures of things uh, sufficiently, then that's not going to be possible. So philosophical methods uh, are important once you've mastered the civic virtues. That's where the contemplative phase really starts. A lot of that is learning how to use language properly, to divide, to synthesize, to analyze, um, to deduce, and ultimately demonstrate, um, you know, truth. And uh, beyond that, there are a few other levels like, uh, you know, Theurgic practice, mystic practice, um, you know, part of this whole system is believing that there are intelligences higher than yourself, not just the forms of these kind of inert principles sitting somewhere, but um, that which embodies form to a greater extent, that which is more on the side of form is more towards mind as a principle. Intellect is uh, the Greek term nous. And that is the term for the second hypostasis as given by Plotinus. You have the one noose is the second hypostasis, which is that realm of forms and then soul beneath it. So there are hyper uh, cosmic intelligences according to the platonic worldview. And um, if you accept that, then it it's kind of like prideful and a bad idea to try to like do all of your own self-actualization on your own basis. Like uh, Proclus will say, the way to um, one's proper virtue is following the beings that are greater than yourself. Um, so that's that's a lot of the emphasis there on like theurgy and making contact with higher spirits. Um, they also, of course, all Platonists believe that each of us has our own presiding daimon, you know, similar to the idea of a guardian angel. And that um, our daimon has uh, been assigned to us in that similar kind of afterlife journey. And they they have a particular intention for our life. They guide us in particular ways. Socrates' daimon from the dialogues only ever tells him to stop doing certain things. Uh, Proclus explains that as, by saying that socrates already had a temperament to go way out of his way to try to help everybody and so his diamond just needed to tell him like okay settle down don't do this um but you know the the nature of each of our individual presiding spirit will differ and learning how to listen to that is important so part of theurgy is like contacting that higher aspect And it is also, again, returning to more of like a monist view here, it is an aspect of ourselves as well as another being. Just like the form of man is in a sense like the the archetypal perfect man that is transcendent of us, but in another sense is like the most substantial element of our nature and is part of us. So reaching higher beings is at the same time reaching into ourselves to like the most fundamental aspect of ourselves
0: yes absolutely that's that notion is so beautiful that you can achieve that level of of higher self like you can self transcend to the point of exemplifying within reality that which you find to be divine so whether that would be like embodying the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth or becoming the Buddha himself it's like these are not scriptures to just follow. These are parables and truths and wisdoms to embody and exemplify in your day-to-day life to create a better reality for yourself and those around you, but then also come closer to truth and whatever form you view truth as. Uh, I thought it was really interesting you hit on grammar. I think that we have lost so much contact with the origins of a lot of the words that we use to describe things nowadays and then especially with the war on language in america as we continually shift and change the meanings of words to fit political aspirations or desires whatever the case is we're doing ourselves a big disservice in that sense and then i also think that this is this is what originally popped in my head when you were talking about grammar was that we create a shared reality through grammar by exchanging ideas like the letters and words themselves are magic that we've created to uh, convey the gestalt of of what we're talking about um, and ultimately try to come closer to truth. And I think think that was something that I found really interesting in uh, Platonism and you can correct me if i'm wrong about this but that there is a there is hard truth within platonism it's not just completely abstract and relative like most contemporary philosophy i feel like is today where it's like truth is whatever you make of it at the time or whatever the mind is making of it at the time it's that there are aspects of reality that are hard truths that you can then Uh, transcend to achieve or interact with. Like beauty, for example, you were talking about beauty earlier. It's like beauty I feel like is something that they would consider a truth in the world.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it spans the gamut of beings. Like all things have some beauty in them. Um, The process described in the Phaedrus for like cultivating the life of the lover will be to um, first recognize uh, the beauty in a particular thing and have like a hard devotion to a particular beautiful object so you, you recognize beauty first in the concrete and then you start to look at the beauty in more things around you higher level things like the beauty of a state the beauty of you know um not just architecture and, and stuff like that but the beauty of like abstract human values systems and then the beauty of like the natural order you know the beauty in things like geometry until eventually you ascend to like contemplate the nature of beauty itself but it's this one and the same reality that's kind of distributed in in a chain from the top down um So, yeah, I mean, there are definitely hard truths that are there to be discovered, and it's not, like, simply um, kind of the interaction between what we're experiencing and us where this, like, Mm -hmm. realm of interpretation, realm of perception manifests, and then whenever you look at some new thing, like, you're changed. This is something that, you know, it sounds like... uh, something this a modern day relativist would say that you're always changing. The things you're seeing are, are, are always changing. Like things are in becoming and not truly being. And Plato like ar- argued very forcefully against this view, um, 2,500 years ago. So I, f- I feel that we've kind of forgotten some of this, but he even like we're reading in my group, the Theaetetus now, which is on the nature of knowledge. And, uh, the Theotetus, the titular character, gives a, an initial definition as uh, knowledge is perception. So Socrates brings out the conclusion that if knowledge is perception and uh, knowledge is always true, then perception is always true, and whatever you perceive is real. And therefore, like, no two people. No one person can be more right about the nature of the world than anyone else. Everyone's truth is his own. And so it's similar to the the idea of uh, Protagoras, who is a sophist um, of the generation of Socrates, um, who held that man is the measure of all things. So he basically, the conclusion is empiricism and the belief that knowledge is simply what we can experience in very mundane terms... The perceptions themselves are clear and distinct ideas um, that come from them. That leads to the view that reality is in flux and truth is relative. And like the the distinction between a dream and the waking world is really just like how long each lasts, and you know how how well we can agree upon reach agreement upon the subject matter of each. Um, so I I do think that's true, and unless you believe that there is a realm of truths like an Akashic record or something along those lines you know then um, language devolves into this kind of uh, idiosyncratic personal poetic expression of one's private experience and any attempt to step outside of that and arrive at something ultimate um, is just futile. So, yeah, I do think there is that realm of uh, truth. This is also important for, like, modern-day theories of semantics and logic and the status of, like, the the proposition um, in analytic philosophy. There is this idea of, like, the unit of meaning underlying sentences. You know, a sentence is in a particular language. But I can say, you know, in, in Spanish that... Uh, trying to remember any Spanish nouns. (laughs) Literally none are coming to mind. But anyway, I can say like the ball is red in Spanish, or I can say the ball is red in English. These are two different sentences, but one in the same proposition. So how exactly is that possible? And how does that work? Unless there is a kind of realm of true propositions out there. Right. It can't have like it, its being can't be dependent on how we articulate it precisely, how we formulate it um, in our own linguistic syntax. There has to be a like a prior reality to the, the truth value of those things. But then if you take that seriously, uh, it's yeah, it becomes like you have to look at the world in a very different way. Really, it's never possible to like invent uh knowledge it's not possible to truly like discover knowledge for the first time or generate it through experience all of it will be a form of remembering what is there like at at the deeper levels of your psyche so and that's the idea of anamnesis that all knowledge is recollection and yeah i mean if you take that seriously it can lead to some bizarre consequences but um you know it, it it's very difficult to have an account of like mathematical truth, logical truth, that just everyday fact that there are true and false sentences that we can use unless there is this realm of true propositions and realm of like true logical relations that subsist prior to our uh, articulating them.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's how I see a a lot of times. is like the, the higher that we, Uh, ascend into consciousness the more in tune with the truths around us we become and the more access we have to them so as we develop new vocabulary new sciences uh, new philosophical thought it's all in the pursuit of elevating our consciousness to come into contact with that more true reality uh, higher and higher I think that I I give a lot of credit to uh, the meaning of humanity to that pursuit that we are consciousness itself experiencing reality and achieving higher levels as we continue to evolve and explore the universe and the world around us but i think that's a beautiful concept i definitely think that there is is real truth in the world and i think that how you were talking about community earlier i think that's so important because that's how you come to a more objective reality with what is around you as you interact with your peers and you engage in dialogue, you exchange ideas, and then you come to a more concrete understanding of the gestalt of what you're talking about at the time. Um, I think that that's something that we really struggle with uh, in modern times today because the pursuit of knowledge has become so internalized and god is either not there or has become so internalized within yourself that i feel like a lot of people really fall into the trap of thinking that they are the sole person in contact with reality and creating the reality around them and i think that we just do ourselves a disservice with that like we need to have strong communities pursuing these this this pursuit of, of knowledge and wisdom. Um, there's not really a question in there. I was just kind of thinking out loud. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I think that that's a beautiful concept. Do you feel like that's one of the biggest differences between say more classical philosophical thought and what is popular in the mainstream today is that idea that there is no community outside of yourself because, there's nothing outside of yourself it's all that abstract god within your mind
1: Mm. yeah they're uh, in modern philosophy with descartes and his radical skepticism the grounds for all knowledge are abstracted from whatever metaphysical um, substrate they emanate from what i mean by that is like when he engages in his pure speculative doubt, his reasoning process, his private reasoning process is there operating, but there he doesn't have the resources to go back and identify where that comes from and what is common in his reasoning process. So it ends up being a kind of solipsistic epistemology where you have to bootstrap your knowledge from your own capacity of reasoning but obviously that capacity of reasoning comes from somewhere and is shared in common with others, but he's already kind of doubted the existence of all others. He'll kind of after the fact, come back and say that like, you know, God wouldn't deceive us. And this kind of radical skepticism should be done away with, but it's important to like identify what the real first principles philosophically, epistemologically ought to be. And, um, yeah, I mean, the one result of that is the rift that is opened up between, like, the res mensa and the res uh, extensa, the realm of extended bodily objects that obey mathematical laws, that are, this is the realm of quantity, and then the private mental realm where we have these experiences, um, and that, yeah, it ends up being kind of an unbridgeable gap and we we lose the communal nature of philosophical speculation because we become each our own private uh, cartesian subjects existing in a fundamentally different realm from the world of external things Uh, for aristotle you know like our language was kind of by imposition uh, and arbitrary but the concepts that our language articulate the annoi those are common throughout all humanity Stoics had the same idea the coinine anoi, all human beings and all creatures to a lesser extent although not like consciously and actively all human beings possess this reflection of the forms reflection of the uh, like logoi or reason principles of the natural world, they are all there in all of our minds. And that's the basis of common sense. And that is like the epistemological foundation. If you look even at the like the way that Pythagoreans in their communities, or Plato in his educational community or in his dialogues, treats the subject of investigation. It is People looking together at these truths, trying to discover these truths, and there is a faith in our common sense, in our common access of a common reason. And if you eliminate the hypostasis where reason properly resides, right, and say that reason is like an epiphenomenon or it's an evolved adaptive response to making sense of the world... What are we tapping? There is no common reason. So all of us are our own private Cartesian subjects, subject to our own private Cartesian doubt. And yeah, I mean, it takes a leap of faith uh, that's beyond many of us to be able to actually commit to like earnest investment in a, a common pursuit of truth. And so we have like this kind of aloofness and our own private views are like, yeah, they just exist in parallel. And I mean, I I do think there's a natural harmonization that happens between souls, right? And we are, like, we do align and form a kind of uh, zeitgeist and, like, get a sort of common gestalt going, Um, but it it becomes something that's indefinite and we can't really, um, you know, ground it coherently unless you have that, you know, where, where does reason ultimately stem from and why should we believe that it is truly common? Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's the difference between what I would find Greek philosophers to believe as rationality versus what we believe as rationality is that in modern times we think rationality is purely empirical and logical. Like if you are not making Logical decisions based on the empirical evidence around you that that is not a rational decision to make. Whereas I feel like back then there was the understanding that rationality was not purely logical in the sense of numbers. There was a level of irrationality involved in that, that exactly like you were saying, you had to take that leap of faith to believe. Um, and I think that that's crucial. I think that. We don't have the cognitive capability to really even begin to fully understand the world around us. And without that leap of faith, we'll never begin to even take the steps down that path to finding out those greater truths that lie outside of the pure mathematical sense. Um, Also, the fact that science is a lot of theories and not necessarily proven. I think that in modern times, a lot of people look at science as a religion and take it as hard doctrine that these theories are how reality and how the universe work. And that's just not the case whatsoever. And I think having that ability to take that leap of faith to jump off the bridge and allow your rationality to involve those aspects of things that you can't necessarily logically articulate are beneficial not only to yourself but to the world at large but then also can give you that meaning in life that I feel like a uh, is severely lacking in a lot of modern philosophical takes uh, and a lot of the individuals I interact with who are staunch advocates of science that it's like if I can't prove this with ones and zeros, it's not true or it doesn't exist and I find that most of those people are oftentimes atheistic and also really susceptible to anxiety and depression. And I think that that kind of leads more into the psychological aspects of the necessity of religion or the necessity of a belief in a higher power than yourself. That's just not found in that.
1: Yeah. There is a complementarity to the rational and the irrational uh, that needs to be taken as a whole, but there is a proper kind of ordered relationship between the rational and the irrational. And you mean, ultimately like Carl Jung, like identify these subconscious tendencies, you know, animus projection, anima projection and how all of that works. But like the um, the transcendental function for, for Jung, the capacity for in, inner dialogue and questioning the nature of the subconscious and bringing it to light uh, reveals that the, the the goal is to bring the irrational into order, is to bring structure to what is unstructured, and we have, uh, and yet there is like a potency in the irrational that needs to be respected. You know, Socrates doesn't go into every interaction dogmatically proclaiming a particular philosophical system. He meets people exactly where they are, and you know, is very sympathetic with and like empathizes with whatever state of unreason they might be subject to. And he diagnoses it by, you know, kind of remaining uh, both like dispassionate at a certain level and with a capacity to, you know, share in the passions of the people he's, he's dealing with so that, you know, sensitivity to their rational is, is certainly important, uh, yeah, I would just emphasize though that like in that relationship, there does always have to be a hierarchy and the same goes for community and that's where things get tricky for people is like a genuine epistemological community where we're seeking truth in common and seeking the good in common. That involves hierarchical relations and uh, we just don't do well with hierarchy in, in the modern day. When when uh, scientific hierarchies exist they're often status-based and you don't have like a kind of uh i don't know kind of pure dialectic space where we we are really attuned to who is who is expressing like the true form of things who is expressing that you know abstract eternal propositional level in the best way like if we were listening to that I think more minority voices um, that have important things to say than are heard would be heard. And who we end up listening to is often who has that position in the university that says "This, this is who you should listen to or who has the clout in social media. And again, this is something Plato deals with all the time, the kind of reign of rhetoricians, the reign of sophists. Who are concerned with appearances? Who are concerned with persuasive ability? And it takes that kind of humility and uh, like sensitivity to the you know where where is that source of order coming from in this interaction? What can I tune into and really you know harmonize with and make, and you know recognize when the the feminine in myself the uh, the material or the irrational in myself should like be formed give way and come into conformity with that source of order and that's when you have true philosophical discourse right where people are together and there is real persuasion there is real progress and i mean that those you know formal elements when someone c- has one of these truths and speaks it they do come from a variety of sources but unless you like we give way in a hierarchical sense in those discussions and, um, yeah, submit our unreason, uh, to, to reason when possible, then it, it devolves into, you know, people in their own private opinionated space, their, uh, you know, private epistemological domain kind of defending against other domains. And that is a default for a lot of people. Yeah. mm
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that you can, not you specifically, do you think that there can be a structure created that can elevate the general population to higher states of consciousness? And when I think about this, I think about Plato's cave. And once you return from the light and he tries to tell the other people that are enchained, like, hey, there's light beyond the cave we need to go explore this like there's truth and beauty out there to be explored and they basically say "Fuck off or we're gonna murder you i feel like that kind of goes hand in hand with the concept of npcs nowadays like there are people that just are non-thinkers in society um so i'm curious from not even play to himself but your own personal standpoint do you view do you view other people like there are people who just cannot ascend to these higher levels of consciousness or do you think that there is a way to hopefully one day create a system of teachings and beliefs to impart that wisdom onto everyone and eventually hopefully create that you know sense of community where as a whole we are pursuing truth and reason rationality as opposed to just indulging in the amenities and luxuries of modern life
1: right yeah well it's tough because at the highest level i think whoever is in charge of putting educational programs in place of structuring civic life to engender that and the group that's in charge of that Needs a kind of egalitarian ethos when it comes to philosophical discourse so that you don't just fall back on, well, I'm in charge, so my opinion goes, you know, you need to be sensitive to the truth wherever it arises. So there is a space of, like, um, you have to believe in a certain kind of equality. But, I mean, realistically, you know, Plato wasn't an egalitarian. He didn't live in an egalitarian society. That's not... What he imagined with the Republic, there is the acknowledgement that there's going to be the majority of people who, um, you know, their fulfillment of their proper virtue is going to be a much humbler life where they're not tasked with responsibilities that impact everybody, you know. And that, it is really tough because for a lot of people, you know, as Proclus says, like finding your proper virtue, the best way is to follow beings higher than yourself for the average person and an average job, like just doing a good job where you are and, you know, doing the best job you can with your family and just like fulfilling your individual duties is good enough, you know? And if you could imbue that with meaning and have A confidence that it matters and it's part of a broader whole then it's it's significant for people I think you know in the medieval order you had um, those who prayed those who fought and those who worked right three basic castes corresponding to to like the Hindu system of the uh, uh, Brahmin Kshatriya um, and then I forget the Sanskrit word for the third caste merchants basically But um, in any case, if you were part of that lower caste, if you were a serf, you know, there was the idea that what you were doing contributed to Christ's kingdom on earth. It contributed to this larger body in a meaningful way. And if you don't have a notion of a corporate identity that you're contributing to, and not just because it's a you know, literally your corporation that you work for and like we need to help the bot like that's not meaningful for people. That's not going to give people a sense of purpose. So the average person doesn't need really all that much philosophy. And actually, you know, like the saying goes, a little bit of philosophy will lead you away from God. A lot will lead you back. And probably the majority of people are in a a phase of their soul where they can get a little bit of philosophy and be turned off from faith in the transcendent and but then they they don't have the resources to go all the way and so that's like it seems that religion is necessary i mean uh, plato recommends the noble lie in the republic uh people have to have this sense of purpose in the community and plato also uh, often comes across very like nationalistic in a way where like the the sense of significance in the community is because like we came out of the ground here and there is that like blood identity that we're all part of i don't know that that aspect of it is necessarily um like universal in platonism like i think there's also this cosmopolitan type um that that is an important thing there's Kind of the universal in particular here that we're dealing with the people who are closer to the bottom of things and more like rooted to the earth and are doing things maybe they do need more of like a basic i am part of this thing uh identity and it's not like you know political theorists are ignorant of that today and i think that's like why high school football teams exist right you need to have that home team home team you know we're part of this we're in this together but yeah, it just seems like a lot of the ways that we are seeking that sense of camaraderie, solidarity are shallow. And a lot of it is the logic of capitalism that kind of undercuts it because you know, success is measured in terms of what you can privately acquire. Often people from marginalized communities um, go on to become millionaires or billionaires and like they're applauded, but all they've done is abandoned where they came from like they didn't elevate their community. So success is often like abandoning your home community and doing what you can on your own. And so naturally, like people won't look at the, the upper class as part of the same corporate, uh, identity and part of like the same spirit. They're going to look at that as like, those are lucky people who made it out of this drudgery. and, And here we are stuck in this. So it's, Yeah, I don't know if we need, like, a different kind of economic system in order for that solidarity to really organically grow up, if we need a new religion for that to grow up organically. I mean, I'm a Christian, and I still believe that Christianity has the tools, but Christianity has taken a lot of wrong paths, I think. Uh, You know, obviously, uh, Christian theology derives very heavily from Platonic theology, um, was influenced by Plato, um, I mean, very likely Jesus himself was <laughs> influenced by Plato. It's not like he wasn't aware of what everyone was reading and thinking about in his day. Um, so, you know, I, I do think that the the core ideas are there in Christianity, but then, like, things like New Earth creationism, um, th- like the controversies that they had back in the first couple, first few centuries You know, there were arguments between Neoplatonists and Christians on the eternity of the world or on, you know, various theological, anthropological problems. And the church has generally gone about these things in a very, like, unphilosophical spirit where they presume that they have the truth. And I just don't, you know, I don't know that that's even keeping with the spirit of Christ himself where there's, like, multiple indications that Jesus doesn't know literally everything in the scriptures. Like sometimes he has supernatural insight and knowledge as to what's happening somewhere, but at other times he asks questions to find out what's going on. Uh he he like prays to God to see if he can, you know, may this cuff be given, you know, or passed by. I forget the exact phrase, but he he doesn't want to be crucified. You know, and so he's praying about that. In what does that say? Like Jesus doesn't know 100% what's what's going down. And doesn't know the divine plan and also like if you look at how Jesus met the fulfillments of prophecy or not depending on your interpretation like it's not exactly what the Jews expected You know? so why should we expect that the church as it exists now has it a hundred percent so I don't know I think like we don't have to stray that far to find at least a mythological language that can convey all of the necessary truths in a form that's not philosophical that doesn't put too many demands on people um, so that's probably the way that I would go, but it's like how how do you go about reforming Christianity as a whole? I mean, we've done it before, so maybe that's maybe that's the way to go.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, once religion and state power came together and just created the institution of the church, I feel like it was really a downward spiral from there, um, because I feel like it really cut off people from that transcendent nature of christianity itself i also think it's really interesting as christianity evolved the more desire to perfect jesus to make him this perfect undeniable being who was just out spreading pure positivity and stuff like that uh so how you were saying like he was asking questions you know he was looking at the world around him he was praying to god he was not this infallible being um and i think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier is that embodying those teachings not just striving to follow this being that is perfect and beyond achievability Um, creating a new religion would be so fascinating or even reforming it i think the answer is total decentralization both religiously and politically i think once we decentralize power and put it back into local communities And you allow people to start shaping their communities politically and shaping their religious institutions themselves um, that's when i think we'll see a resurgence maybe a completely possible re renaissance of ideas so yeah i think that that's really fascinating i think that that would be hopefully where we go as a society is bringing power back into our own hands and not allowing corrupt institutions of power to continue to roll over the most fundamental aspects of creating communities and self-governance and communal governance. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have no idea, you know, it's like, how do you actually go about achieving that? Like, I mean, these institutions of power are so entrenched that to make any meaningful change, would require a complete toppling of the system itself. And then hopefully something new would come out of it. Like capitalism has its flaws, but I certainly don't want to see socialism or communism reinstated either. I think that those have massive flaws as well. I think it would be fascinating to see moving forward that renaissance, like I was saying, of of ideas and creating something new, creating new economic structures, creating new religions, uh decentralizing them out and letting people on their own do so, and then through merit, spreading around the things that are being successful. And I think that that goes back into just as a human being with the self transcendence thing, it's like you want to exemplify the highest levels of man within yourself. And in doing so, people will want to follow you. It's like, that's why people wanted to follow Jesus. That's why people want to follow Plato. It's like these men were exemplifying these higher levels of consciousness. And that's naturally going to attract people to that. So if you decentralize everything and you let people create their own shit, then people will naturally in turn follow the things that are succeeding. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, how do we get there?:
1: Well, right. I think that's that is the way though, is uh, you know you have to take it into your own hands. And if you think that community is important, education is important, philosophy is important, then okay build your school of philosophy, build your community. Um, So that's, you know, I would like to, to build a platonic Academy. I think it's a shame that nothing like that exists. I mean, it's obviously a super important school of thought. It's not even just Plato himself, but the influence of Platonism throughout history, it's, and people hardly scratch the surface of it in university. I mean, I know philosophy majors that never read a platonic dialogue. How is that even possible? Um, so, yeah, I think uh, a school for Platonism would be a good start. Um, a, just an open school of philosophy. I mean, there are a lot of things that you could teach very cheaply that, you know, wouldn't take huge resources to get schools going for these. Things. Like an, uh, an open school, like a, a free school of, of philosophy, something like that um, would be along the right lines. Um, I've always been interested in, like, education and Forming a school—that's what Plato did, as far as his political activism—and uh, it was successful. It changed things, um, but of course, when you do that, you're going to run into resistance from uh, the power structure as it is. You know, decentralizing power means taking power away from people that have it who want it. So that's that is a challenge. But I mean, we have a lot of freedom in the United States to form our own communities, do our own thing. So, yeah, I think that's definitely, I mean, in our situation, the best thing to do is just, you know, get going with it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, the Internet is an insanely useful tool. I mean, like the ability for us right now to just be hundreds, thousands of miles apart and have a conversation on this is a beautiful thing. The proliferation of information and knowledge and wisdom is easier than it ever has been Uh, we just have to make sure that we do not allow that to be taken away from us but i think creating a school of platonic thought would be fucking fascinating and then also yeah like you were saying it's like people have such a a one pixelated image of his thought and of the thought in general myself included as i said at the beginning i was like i have a very shallow understanding of all of this um but i'm trying to to learn and to educate myself and to absorb some of that wisdom. But also for people to just understand thought itself, like no one growing up, I feel like has ever really taught the history of thought. It's like, why do we think these things? Like who are the philosophers that really affect our day-to-day grammar and our day-to-day interaction with the world around us? I think even having a a small understanding of that can completely shift the way that you function as a human being. And having an actual school, it's like go to brick and mortar would be a beautiful thing. And I think you'd attract so many fascinating, interesting people who are really there for the desire to engage in dialogue with like-minded individuals and exchange ideas and to have discourse and disagreements and agreements and to evolve themselves as they're evolving their own thoughts and evolving the thoughts of others yeah it's beautiful man super beautiful
1: cool yeah i mean you got to stand on the shoulders of giants and uh plato a good place to start i mean that's also like the whole having a place where people can congregate and engage in philosophy that might be why athens was so incredibly successful in the ancient world because they had the agora you know the the stoics were based on the idea of the stoa um you need these common spaces The internet can offer that to a degree, and we should exploit that as much as possible, but it also allows for this kind of parasociality and simulation of friendship and TikTok and whatever else comes with the internet. So you gotta be careful. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, it's a technology. It's not good or evil. It's all based upon how you use it. Uh, Yeah, that's absolutely beautiful, dude. On a day-to-day basis, what would you say keeps you optimistic about the world?
1: Assuming I am optimistic,
0: I'm not, I'm not really optimistic
1: about the world, to be honest.
0: Yeah. Extrapolate on that. This is the uh, last I think, thing I want. I just to
1: think you. there are a lot of uh, troubling signs. Uh, I think resource uh, scarcity alone is going to lead to a lot of conflicts, including over fresh water, especially with like China and Turkey and Turkey controlling a lot of uh, water sources for the far east and near east respectively um what's going on with nato slash russia is troubling what's going on with you know chinese domination (laughs) across the board in a lot of respects is is troubling and that's just it's gonna encourage the powers that be in the west to double down on saying like we you have to empower us more because we can save you from these external threats and all of this chaos in the world and uh, i i don't think any countervailing force is coming to encourage decentralization except for people so if anything it's people who really do have that desire for the truth and and want to do these things but i don't as far as like the fate of civilization as a whole i mean i I, i'm sympathetic with uh oswald spangler's theories of history and i think that we are in a declining civilization and probably will see the end of it and but out of the ashes of that something new may be born so the, the best i think we can shoot for is laying good seeds and starting good institutions uh like the pythagoreans did that when that day comes, when they can kind of flower and come to the surface, we're ready.
0: Yes, I couldn't agree more. I think that we are absolutely seeing the push for utter totalitarianism. I think that we'll see civil conflict, if not another world war within the next five to 10 years, more than likely. Um, But I agree, laying the seeds is is what keeps me optimistic on a day-to-day basis, that there are people out there who are free thinkers and desire to not bend the knee to centralized power and I think that's a beautiful thing and I think that that is the history of humanity is that constant struggle with the power to be free and the power of those in charge to control those underneath them and it's just a constant creep towards hopefully becoming a freer and freer species Um, so yeah individual faith I agree with, but as a whole, I, I agree. I think civilization is on a, a path towards disaster, and I think most people are completely content with it as well. I think most people, as long as they have Netflix and there's ho-hos on the shelf that they can go and sup their face with, that they're going to be fine. You know, you give them bread and circuses, you keep the people fat and happy, and they really don't care too much about what's going on outside of that. So until the grocery stores go empty, the supply chains break down, I think that we're just going to see a continual shift from the federal government to seize and control more and more power uh, and to continue to just bleed the system dry through the Federal Reserve and the printing of money on a dime. It's a really, uh, really dire situation as far as the american civilization goes so on that note on that happy note you can... <laughs> yeah absolutely man eric dude i can't thank you enough for your time dude you dropped a lot of wisdom and knowledge on me and i'm definitely gonna go back and rewatch this episode and start diving more into these topics and into these great thinkers that really laid the road for us so i can't thank you enough for your time man
1: yeah cool it was fun talking with you um, for anyone who wants to get into the stuff, I'm using the Iamblichian curriculum. I do recommend that. So it's just a, a list of dialogues in order to read them. And if you can look at some of the commentators alongside it, um, they they're often very insightful. Sometimes difficult to read Proclus more than the others, but uh, but yeah, it's good stuff.
0: Absolutely beautiful, Eric Wall, ladies and gentlemen.